My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. So when we are asking ourselves, well, can we really defund police, given that a woman is killed every six days in Canada by her partner? I would say the answer is yes. The answer is yes, because the ongoing cultures within settler colonialism that maintain these systems of policing and coercion and control are what create these most dangerous. That's the voice of Ardeth Wynott, today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Why Not is an activist, writer, and scholar who lives in Mi'kmaq territory and teaches sociology at Mount Allison University in New Brunswick. For the last two decades, her activities have focused on working for and with survivors of state and family violence. She's also the author of a new book called Insurgent Love, Abolition and Domestic Homicide, forthcoming from Fernwood Publishing. In 2001, Why Not took a job as a counselor supporting survivors of gender-based violence in a victim services unit attached to the Halifax Regional Police. Her time in that job made it very clear to her, quote, how terribly ineffective policing was as a strategy, end quote, for responding to intimate partner violence, particularly in its higher-risk forms. From what she observed, the immediate police response rarely made anyone safer, contributed little to undoing or healing the harms that had been done, and often itself did harm, and it certainly did nothing to address root causes and thereby prevent future harms. As well, racism, classism, and sexism were built into police responses in numerous ways. Even beyond that, there were very few supports available to people who had engaged in violent behavior to help them change those patterns. And while there were some supports available for survivors, which could in some circumstances be quite important for them, often they were inadequate in amount and kind. They were just not set up to be responsive to the complex realities of navigating gendered violence in intimate settings, and in the context of a response governed by logics of policing, they couldn't be. She said, quote, I was learning on the ground what a lot of black feminists and organizers in the States and also in Canada already knew, end quote. In other words, she continued, quote, working in gender-based violence in my early 20s turned me into an abolitionist, end quote. To paraphrase U.S.-based abolitionist Ruth Wilson Gilmore, prison abolitionism is a radical politics that seeks not only to do away with prisons as institutions, but also to transform the conditions under which prison became the supposed solution to problems. A few years after she began that work, Why Not also began doing educational work with prisoners serving long-term sentences, including men who had been convicted of offenses related to gender-based violence. The importance of offering supports not just to survivors but also to those who had been violent became even more clear to her. For one thing, many perpetrators of violence were also survivors of violence, though this was only one factor among many. And she witnessed firsthand the potential of even many people who had committed terrible acts to, with the right kinds of supports, engage in change and healing, and to provide support and mentorship to others on the same journey. As the years passed, Why Not became engaged with these issues not just in direct, grassroots ways, but also as a scholar. 
In 2017, she got a grant to do interviews with people engaged in transformative justice projects for addressing gender-based violence in communities across the continent. And one of the key themes that emerged from that work was the lack of resources available for responding in these grassroots abolitionist ways to the most dangerous forms of gendered violence, those sustained patterns of coercion and control often referred to as quote-unquote intimate terrorism. In response, she started thinking about what sorts of resources, what sorts of tools, what sorts of frameworks might be necessary to respond to the most dangerous forms of domestic violence in abolitionist ways. Insurgent love is what resulted. An important foundational insight for the book, drawn from the work of many black, indigenous, and racialized feminists, is about the deep interconnections between violence in intimate settings and the large-scale state-driven violence of racial capitalism and settler colonialism, and the recognition that you cannot understand or address them separately. And in the spirit of the deep practicality that is so often part of the abolitionist vision, Why Not in the book explores a number of elements that might productively become part of community-based, non-state, non-carceral responses to intimate terrorism, gender-based violence, and domestic homicide. I speak with Why Not about gender-based violence, prison abolition, and insurgent love, abolition, and domestic homicide. My name is Artis Wynott, and I'm an associate professor of sociology at Mount Allison University. Insurgent Love, Abolition and Domestic Homicide is a book about how we can think through abolition and defunding police while also being attentive to high-risk intimate partner violence that leads to domestic homicide. Working in gender-based violence in my early 20s turned me into an abolitionist. I had been involved in anti-globalization movements, but at that time in my life, I didn't have a solid analysis on the role of police and policing and borders and domestic security forces in the expansion of neoliberal capitalism and settler colonialism. I had a mistrust of police, largely because of my class background and the role that police played in my community growing up. But it wasn't until I spent time working directly within a regional police force here in Halifax Regional Police that I came to understand the mechanisms and the effects of police involvement in family violence in my own community. I think what struck me after spending time in the unit was just how terribly ineffective policing was as a strategy for helping to build safety and security within families and helping to protect survivors from especially those higher risk forms of intimate partner violence. We were piloting a program that was supposed to respond directly to known risk factors for intimate partner homicide. But as folks know who maybe have been in violent relationships or have had loved ones who have been in violent relationships, all of these programs are kind of pointless if the survivor doesn't want to leave their relationship. And in some cases, this was due to fear, fear for their own safety at leaving the relationship. But in a lot of cases, survivors did love their partner and it was really messy and complicated. And the way in which the criminal code was being deployed through police engagement, they really didn't have the tools to address how complex family violence was. And in many cases, they made the survivor's experience a lot worse. I was learning on the ground what a lot of Black feminists and organizers in the States and also in Canada already knew, which is that policing is deployed unequally and police force is distributed in unjust ways because police forces are racist and they work strategically to maintain racialized class orders. So we know that policing is racist. The determination of whether or not a perpetrator is found guilty or not guilty of family violence really has no bearing and no relationship to the healing processes that are required and involved in building safety and security within those families and within those relationships. 
So where you have a really complex situation where often the survivor might still love the person who is harmful to them and who is a danger to them, what is needed is a wider range of community supports to address the root causes of the violence. When I was working in a victim services unit, there were very few supports offered for those who were harmful and violent to their family members. And for survivors who wanted to be safe, they were often sort of facing a choice between staying home and potentially being subject to a dangerous partner, returning to the home after they'd signed the no contact order, or moving into a secure shelter. And the shelter system, as important as it is for keeping people safe, especially if you have children, it's really, really difficult to be in a crowded shelter. And so, you know, all of the services that were offered to survivors whose partners were charged after a domestic violence call were really inadequate. And so I was seeing the same survivors over and over again. And I understand you also got involved in working with prisoners. I started working in prisons in 2008. I've worked in both men's and women's prison with folks who have received long-term sentences and have at some point in their sentence been in secure or maximum security units within the prison. I've learned a great deal from working with folks with lived experience and being incarcerated. As most abolitionists know and are often trying to communicate to the broader public, we know that there's no neat and tidy line between victims of violence and perpetrators of violence in our society. Many folks who do pose a risk to their loved ones and other folks in their community, those who turn to violence as a coping mechanism to build security in however pathological ways, they often have histories of being victimized by violence. But what I think was most stark and what I learned is that those with lived experience of engaging in severe violence, including homicide, given the right resources and supports can actually be very supportive to the healing and rehabilitation process for other folks who have engaged in severe and often unspeakable acts of violence. And this was a really humbling and important lesson because working with those who have harmed in deep ways, who have harmed in ways where there is no survivor because their victim didn't survive, you know, it's difficult to think about how we can apply transformative and restorative approaches to those severe acts of violence. But seeing the ways in which folks with lived experience carved out spaces to provide mentorship and healing for each other through their own journeys of coming to grips with and accepting the harms that they've caused, this was a really profound landscape of accountability. This is not to say that I believe that prisons did a very good job of supporting those sorts of processes. In fact, from what I've learned working with folks who have since been released from prison, organizations like COSA, Circles of Support and Accountability, which happens outside of prisons with folks who have received a sentence for sexual violence. But I think that incarcerated people and formerly incarcerated people, given the right resources and healing supports for themselves, need to play a role at the forefront of our abolitionist movements because they are the ones who understand how to support and how to create community-based healing resources for those who pose the greatest danger to all of us. What led you to write Insurgent Love, Abolition and Domestic Homicide? I received a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council in 2017 to do interviews with folks who were engaging in transformative justice projects for addressing gender-based violence in their communities. And what became very clear to me through doing a lot of these interviews was that there was a lack of resources available for tackling the really dangerous relationships. We know in feminist domestic violence literature that you can't paint all violence with the same brush when it comes to family violence. There are two very distinct types of family violence. 
The first being by far the most common, which is situational couple violence. And this is the sort of violence where we see violence resorted to as a coping mechanism for feelings of insecurity, precarity, stress. Often there are attachment issues related to it. Often addictions issues will play into this sort of situational couple violence. And although situational couple violence can be very dangerous, so someone can lose their life or experience severe injury, bodily injury as a result of that sort of violence, it was not the same type of violence that we see within the domestic violence shelter system, which is what those who research this area talk about as intimate terrorism. Intimate terrorism is characterized by a form of coercive control that follows a very stable pattern. This pattern of surveillance, strategic violence to create an atmosphere of fear and control, all of this leads to a very dangerous situation for those who are looking to intervene and support the survivor in that type of relationship. So when I was talking to folks in different communities across Canada and the States, what I was hearing is that there's a lot of great projects that can deal with situational couple violence at the community level without involving police. But folks really had their hands tied and were feeling very vulnerable about supporting survivors in the most dangerous relationships in our communities. It led me to start thinking through, in abolitionist terms, what sort of frameworks we need to understand the most dangerous forms of domestic violence. Because on one hand, folks have argued that these very dangerous forms of family violence mean that, you know, some relationships are so dangerous that we do need some prisons to put those really dangerous folks in. And something didn't feel right to me about drawing that conclusion from this type of family violence. So what the book really addresses is the relationship between ongoing processes of settler colonialism and police violence and how these intimate terrorist relationships are taught and maintained. Because in North America, this type of very dangerous intimate terrorist relationship emerged simultaneously with the imposition of colonialism and the expansion of settler colonialism within a territory. This is the sort of violence that emerged as a result of the way in which control over territory and the objectification and possessive violence over Indigenous people was enacted upon the land. So when we are asking ourselves, well, can we really defund police, given that a woman is killed every six days in Canada by her partner? I would say the answer is yes. The answer is yes, because the ongoing cultures within settler colonialism that maintain these systems of policing and coercion and control are what create these most dangerous relationships. However, it also means that we need very different tools for intervening in high-risk, coercive, intimate terrorist relationships in our communities if we're not going to rely on policing. So how is gender-based violence related to, produced by, these broader relations of settler colonialism and racial capitalism? Black feminist thought tells us that systems of military violence and policing violence are related to family violence and gender-based violence. When we look more specifically at how intimate terrorist relationships and these high-risk for homicide relationships arise within our everyday lives, I think what we need to be looking at is how police homicides and intimate partner homicides are connected through the psychological ecology and the characteristics of the perpetrators. Understanding the relationship between settler colonialism and racial capitalism and high-risk intimate partner violence requires us to look at some of the common risk factors. We know that occupational stress, for example, 
recent unemployment, the threat of job loss, or exposure to violence or bullying within the workplace, such as military work, which we know those who are involved as soldiers within the military witness a lot of violence as well. We know that that is a risk factor for engaging in course of control, intimate terrorist violence, and often intimate partner homicide. But when we think about occupation as something that's also the goal, the end goal of settler colonial structures of power, state structures of power, we have to be looking at the relationship between perpetrators of both police homicide and intimate partner homicide hold occupation as sort of the framework of identity within their psyche. Racial capitalism and settler colonialism often relies on those that we socialize as men to be thinking about their worth and value as their value in the globalized labor market. Not all of us experience a catastrophic existential crisis where we turn to violence when we have job loss, but within settler colonial racial capitalism, we need to be thinking through the way in which men's engagement in the labor force in dangerous work, demoralizing work, often rests upon this notion that their entire identity is related to that work. So I think we need a little bit of a better analysis on the role of occupation in creating forms of stress and crisis and precarity that we know in the literature leads to higher rates of intimate partner homicide. Another way in which intimate partner homicide and intimate terrorism is connected to ongoing structures of settler colonialism is through what scholars have called the possessive logic of white supremacy. This idea that we can possess objects and this drive to possess more and more and greater objects through the exploitation and the extraction of natural resources from the land and, of course, through the possession of others through histories of slavery and through what we see as like patriarchal means of treating women as objects within, you know, early institutions of marriage and within sexualized consumer capitalism. So this possessive logic where we continue to engage in our occupations and continue to be beholden to racial capitalism through our work and through the way in which we dedicate our entire lives to you know, working endlessly and in precarious and often damaging ways. This possessive logic also leads to what we see in intimate partner homicide in high-risk relationships as the possessive logic of a coercive partner. So this, if I can't have you, no one will trope that we see in the media is borne out in the literature where, you know, in family homicides, as well as just intimate partner homicides, we see often a killer who has faced a major existential crisis through occupational stress and a possessive logic over the partner. The forensic literature around intimate partner homicide talk about the way in which someone who kills their partner will turn to being increasingly more and more possessive over their partner through acts of intimate terrorism and violence as a reaction to dispossession within the globalized labor market. And so this is where our analysis of high-risk intimate partner violence has to be connected to the deeper ways that we try and organize against racial capitalism and to organize against forms of precarity and occupation that continue to keep us relating to our work and foregoing any attempt to organize and rise up against forms of employment and labor that leave us broken and insecure and precarious because the cost of dispossession and harm in our workplaces and the cost of dispossession through globalized market forces is often borne on those who are in high-risk intimate partner relationships. In the book, what I really try and tackle is more theoretical ways that we can understand why some relationships are so dangerous 
and also think through how we can engage in our own risk assessment practices to see, okay, well, we know that someone is very scared of their partner and we know that we want to step in and intervene as communities and organize in ways to keep them safer. But we also know that this partner might be dangerous. And if we look through a lens that looks at how much they are tied to sort of in these existential ways, how much occupational stress, how much feelings of dispossession, and then resulting attempts at possession of their partners are operating, we can sort of understand the extent to which the state is really running the show inside the psyches of those who are using violence in their relationships. And so in the book, I talk about how, you know, we wouldn't do an accountability circle with a cop. Well, (laughs) cops and intimate terrorists have a lot of the same psychic reactions and structures They are both mobilizing violence in the same patterns and in the same ways, one within their homes and one in the streets. They are engaging in strategic forms of state violence that replicate earlier forms of settler colonial violence. And that's very different from situational couple violence. So those who are most dangerous in terms of elevated risks for homicide with their partner need to think about them as cops and treat them as such within our communities. Beyond developing better community-based ways of assessing risk, what kinds of non-carceral interventions do you see as useful in this context? I really see a need for renewed attention to labor organizing and better engagement from unions in looking at the relationship between occupational stress and intimate partner homicide and family homicide. Because we can't do this without labor organizing. We need to have ways to untangle and respond to the harms of occupation as it emerges in our working lives. In addition, I think we also need to have renewed calls and attention to disarmament, especially in rural communities. I work with folks in rural communities. My family comes from a rural community. When I talk about abolition in that context, the standard ways of approaching the topic don't resonate and don't make sense because a lot of these communities are underserved by police. There are no police forces. If there is domestic violence, you will wait hours and hours for police to come if they come at all. However, we still see the same sorts of violence, state violence that police enact in urban centers. We see that happening in rural communities from men with guns. And many of those men engage in forms of intimate terrorism and coercive control within their communities and within their homes. When it comes to risk factors for intimate partner homicide and family homicide, access to firearms is a major, major risk factor. And so I think that disarmament, especially within rural communities, would go a long way in terms of at least making the territory safer for us to intervene as communities. I also make a case for thinking about youth work. Arguably, in some circumstances, the risks of community-based intervention are just too high. And so if we think about prevention of these kind of relationships, well, one, defunding police and pushing back on police culture and pushing back on state violence as it emerges in all aspects of our lives is one form of preventing high-risk intimate partner violence. But another way we can tackle it is through youth work and through forging meaningful, healthy, secure, generative, and transformative relationships with young people in our communities. This is something I think about a lot because it is difficult to organize. And I think that some of the organizing that's required when we think about defunding and abolition is really overwhelming for folks who are already overworked and burnt out in other aspects of their lives. But it only takes one or two healthy, secure adults to have a relationship with a young person in their community who might really need 
someone to care for them and support them even just once a week. And that is the kind of abolitionist work that I think we don't pay attention to as often, but I think we need to because we need to be engaging youth in movements and we need to be thinking about how most of the killers that I have worked with in prisons, had they have had even just one or two meaningful, safe or healthy relationships with adults in their younger lives, might not have gone on to take the lives that they did. Part of our abolitionist agenda has to be transforming our relationships with younger generations so that we are forming those protective factors so that the violence of the settler colonial state doesn't take root and go on to shape the future psyche and identity of those who are made vulnerable by the violence that's in our daily lives. So I can imagine some gender-based violence activists coming from a strand of feminism more exclusively focused on patriarchy and not necessarily as in tune with how patriarchy interlocks with other systems of domination, saying, yes, that's all well and good, but right now there are men killing women and we need to focus primarily on responding to that. And we can worry about more preventative interventions later. How would you answer that kind of argument? Beth Ritchie put it really well in her analysis in the United States of how the collusion of emerging violence against women movements, the collusion of white feminists with policing culture and the tough on crime political attitudes that were taking shape after the 1980s in the United States really created a situation where the root causes of violence weren't being addressed and where women of color were not being listened to when they were talking about the risks that police posed to their communities. One really frustrating and difficult thing for me is that a lot of the data collection on what they call femicide or the murder of women and girls because of their gender is one, a lot of the work coming out of the UK is dominated by trans misogyny and turf brand of feminism, which is, you know, at its roots, fascist and white supremacist. And so it's really difficult to find folks who are working on intimate partner homicide from abolitionist frameworks, but also abolitionist frameworks that acknowledge that if we don't talk about men's violence against men, we won't understand men's violence against women. And furthermore, we also know that high-risk intimate partner violence takes place within queer communities at rates that are equal to, and in some cases, greater than what's experienced in heterosexual relationships. So this one-dimensional analysis that seeks to blame patriarchy for violence to the exclusion of everything else doesn't ask what I think the most important question is, which is, okay, well, where did patriarchy come from? And if we take history seriously within settler colonial Canada, we have to look at how what we call the patriarchy today within carceral feminism was forcibly imposed upon this territory through the expansion of British colonial powers. If we end our analysis with patriarchy, we don't draw our connections to the state. We also do not develop the tools and the analyses that we need to understand how someone comes to harm or kill in the first place. If we really take the question seriously, how is it that some violent partners come to be so deeply dangerous to their partners, their family members, and to us when we try to intervene, we cannot ignore the role of the state and state violence and how cultures of policing and how carcerality is taught and maintained in every aspect of our lives. You have been listening to my interview with Ardeth Wynott about her new book, Insurgent Love, Abolition and Domestic Homicide. To learn more about it, search for it on fernwoodpublishing.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 